Greetings both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History and Film. This is another bonus episode for you this week that I am really excited to hear Logan's take on. We are discussing the 1980 Australian film Breaker Morant that was vaguely on my radar. Like I think I had heard of it before it was recommended to us, uh, which I should say this is another listener recommendation, although I actually don't know his name. He, it's a co-worker of our friend Aaron out in California, and I don't actually know her co-worker's name but. how did how did we find out about this was it did she bring it up to you oh or? yeah aaron texted me and said hey my co-worker says you guys should check out breaker Morant." <laughs> oh okay so we are doing that now so i feel like i went more into the rabbit hole of this story more than i usually do with others like i really kind of got fascinated by this whole real life story and unlike other things we've researched with this i felt like the more i researched the less I knew because you would just find people that are have dug their trenches on either side of what we're going to talk about today. And they are a hundred percent convinced that their side is right. And the other side is full of it. It's, it's insane. It's insane. Almost like what we see in the movie. Well, true, but I feel like even the movie (laughs) kind of wants you to be somewhat sympathetic to them. Well, I mean like as far as the two sides being like completely and utterly convinced that, their side is the correct side. Oh, uh, yeah, and that's true. Which is like, I mean, that's that's pretty standard, I guess, for any like courtroom movie. But in this one especially, there's like, it's not even like a facts of the case thing. It's like an ideological thing, almost. So why don't you give us the premise of the movie and the director and all that kind of stuff like you often do, and then I'll give the background to the Boer War leading into the actual events of the film. Okay, so Breaker Morant is, uh, like you said, 1980 Australian film directed by Bruce Beresford, I think is how you say the name. It is basically a courtroom drama similar to really big like Paths of Glory vibes. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's Paths of Glory meets Few Good Men. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, military courtroom movie where there are three. They're Australian soldiers, but they're in a like a unit that's that is in the as part of the British army. But I think at this time, Australia was no longer like an actual British colony. It was it's it was uh, a commonwealth, right? Well, it's right around the time because I, I didn't look at the exact timeline on that. But I do know when we talked about Gallipoli, which would which should just be, you know, 15 years after this, that it was all kind of new. And that was kind of so right. We're definitely at the beginnings of Australia going from part like literally just like a colony to a commonwealth. And so it's kind of in that yeah. transition right now, yeah. I didn't see the exact dates. Yeah, and I, they still refer to them, like the British guys refer to the Australians as colonists. Oh, right. But they also, they mention that they have a prime minister and stuff too, so it okay. wouldn't be, okay. I guess they're not, but anyways, so they're fighting in the Boer War in South Africa in uh, 1902, and basically these three Australians are accused of multiple war crimes for the uh, execution of prisoners of war, basically, 
And also one of them is accused of shooting a German missionary. Um, and so they're, the movie basically then follows the trial of these three guys for these alleged war crimes. Yes, it's based off a play that had come out just like a year or two before. And, and you kind of get that vibe that it's, you yeah, can, it's, it feels like well, a play. It's, yeah, It's based off a play that's based off a book. Oh, okay. That okay. was actually written by one of the guys that was on trial. Oh, okay. So they mentioned that book at the end, The uh, Scapegoats of the Empire of an Empire. Yes. I guess I didn't realize the play was based more directly off of off of that book. Which, again, that book is definitely selling just the one side. Obviously, just the defendant's side uh, of the case and is uh, you know definitely biased to them maybe more than the film and the play were. So I guess they may use that as a launching point and then try to explore both sides. The tricky part is, I don't know if you saw this, but the actual trial transcripts no longer exist. They were destroyed, but like everything from this time was destroyed by the South African government, it looks like. Like basically just as a matter of course, there's like a 50-year range where the British were controlled. And in like the 1950s, South Africa was just destroying all that stuff. And Oh, really? I, I don't understand why, other than they just decided to. And so it wasn't like it was a conspiracy to destroy this trial specifically. They just got rid of all the records from this period that the British had, which, again, seems huh. bizarre, but they did it. And so we don't have the actual trial transcripts. Real quick, it, it looks like maybe the play, I just want to make a correction real fast. Okay. The play wasn't maybe directly based on that book, although uh, it is probably likely that... Like, oh, I'm sure he read it, yeah. <laughs> ...played a huge role in... Because it's like, there is no trial transcript, and a lot of oh, the... Right. A lot of the stuff that we know about it comes from like the first-hand account of uh, George Witten, who was one of the guys on trial who wrote the book. Right. And I was, and I was looking, too. So on January 1st, 1901, the, Australia got the what is called the, they're calling the Federation of Colonies. So basically, basically yeah, we really are like, this is like the beginning of Australia as we know it today. And like between, yeah. like right before and right after this movie is kind of when they become what they are today which then leads into like we said with gallipoli and world war one they're kind of a new nation even if they are part of the the commonwealth so the background to the boer war here itself um uh, this is actually the the second boer war although the first one was uh minor enough that sometimes this one is just called the boer war uh, they actually call it the south african war in south africa today just oh, really? to to, just to make clear that it wasn't just the boers versus the british that it was kind of like all the kind of native well, I say the native people, <laughs> the native white population. And that's kind of what, that's the simple, super, super simple version. Again, just this would be an 18-hour episode if we didn't kind of cut some corners here. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. So the uh, the super simple version is you have the Imperialist British, the Boers, which is just kind of, we're going to stand in for all of the local white population that are kind of descended from the presidents of the Dutch East India Company. So, you know, it's predominantly Dutch background, but all, all Europeans kind of migrated here. Doesn't that word Boer, it means, like, it's like a word for like farmer? Yeah, right? yeah. In in Dutch or Afrikaans, I, I don't know what, what right. language do these people speak? Is it Afrikaans? Afrikaans is just kind of a, quote, bastardized Dutch. I mean, it, it's derived from Dutch, oh, but okay. basically just anytime you have a population separated, languages evolve. And so Afrikaans derived from Dutch. Kind of like they don't really speak exactly modern French in Haiti, but it derived from French. Right. And it's kind of become or its own like thing. Just like they don't really speak English in in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> the one I always love is the uh, in uh, Thirty Rock where they have Michael Sheen and 
he has all these fake Britishisms. <laughs> and like, <laughs> like he comes, he goes by on his bicycle and like almost falls. Like, oh, he almost made me fall off my velocipede. And just like <laughs> all these different <laughs> fake Britishisms. Uh, that's just something I can think of off, off the top of my head. Uh, and then you also have the Native African population and all the various tribes there, but they really don't play into today's story. And even in my research, even though obviously most of the people living in South Africa were the Native Black population, they just aren't really a factor in this film today. But even in my research, they're just not necessarily super involved in this conflict, although I'm sure they were. I'm sure they were taking up arms probably on both sides to some extent. Yeah, I, that was something that I thought was interesting in this movie is that it takes place in South Africa and yet there's only maybe like four black characters in the whole movie and three of them are just like background like, oh I know dudes sweeping up and only one of them has any speaking roles and it's literally one line like at the in the yeah. like, beginning ambush it's like that's that was not what I expected but then after looking into the Boer War it's like oh okay this was actually mostly a like European on European conflict it just happened to be in South Africa. Right, which seems ridiculous until you think, well, we had the Revolutionary War in the United States of America, and the Native Americans right. don't play prominently into that. So it's, I think yeah. it's similar to that. So yeah, basically, the, the Dutch and the Boer ancestors had first settled in like the 1650s, and the British kind of had come in over the years as uh, the Netherlands kind of became less powerful. And then by 1806, the British took control of the area by force and just had, you know, that's what they were doing. This is you know, the, the 1800s was the height of British imperialism, which is why then the, the Boers who had been here longer and feel more entitled to the land just kind of want the British to leave. And so they kind of start migrating away from the areas the British control. It's almost kind of funny. So you have the Boer, you know, kind of Dutch colonies. Britain comes in and takes over. And then so the Boers just move out of those areas and into other parts of South Africa today. Just kind of, and, okay, British control this, well, then we'll just move away. And then the British kept, kept trying to annex everything they kept moving into, because that's what they would do. And there was kind of a little skirmish. The Boers did kind of get their independence in some areas of what is now the north part of South Africa. And then we find diamond and gold. And so that's going to help the Boers financially, but they don't really have the infrastructure in place to get the resources and this wealth out of the ground. And so they do kind of concede to allow the British in to help mine these resources. But then what quickly happens is all the British mine workers all of a sudden outnumber the local Boer population and want to be able to vote in the elections. It's now, you know, time is passing. I'm months and years. Now I'm living here. I feel like I'm a citizen of this area as a, as a British person working in these mines. I should have the right to vote. And the Boers are like, if we give them the right to vote, we're not going to have a Boer government anymore. The British are just going to take over. Right. And so... Tensions then get higher and higher and higher. There's negotiations, and eventually the Boers actually declare war on the British. And so the the, war, the Second Boer War here breaks into three distinct phases that are actually pretty simple to understand. The Boers, knowing that they were mis a mismatch against the British, strike first. Basically, they wanted to get they wanted to draw first blood, catch the British off guard, which they do, and kind of score some early victories before the British can kind of get things, you know, get their ducks in a row. Phase two, the British get their ducks in a row and start stomping the Boers because they just have more resources, more manpower. Just right. it's the British. It's the British. It's the height of the British Empire. Yeah, which then forces phase three. Uh, the Boers resort to guerrilla warfare, which is kind of what we're seeing in the film, where they they're, they're not going to have stand up battles. They're just kind of it, it's almost like the Vietnam thing or 
win the shakes of the barley in Ireland. It's, they're, they're just kind right. of doing the underground, sabotaging yeah. the British as, as, as they can. Right. Hit and run, not wearing uniforms. Right. Right. So this is the world in which we get to the story in today's film, where we see these three men on in a court-martial trial for basically war crimes, which is actually one of the first instances uh, in British military history not the first, but this is kind of where the, the time period around the world where they were first starting to have these trials where they were holding their soldiers accounted, accountable for uh, potential, what we would call today, war crimes. I'm not sure exactly right. what they called them at the time. or It was just like each crime was its own thing. They didn't necessarily have a broad category, per se. So let, let me get to them. Breaker Morant himself. Uh, and this was okay. a really, really interesting figure. And we'll kind of get him now into, the, into this story. And again, I'm telling you, the more I read about this guy, the more I don't even know what to believe. So I kind of went through uh, right. and made a bunch of notes and then kind of felt like I had made an assessment of him. But then you watch someone else. I actually watched like the full, there's like a 90 minute do- documentary on, on YouTube. Yeah, I watched the whole thing. Oh, I, yeah. I saw that. I haven't okay. watched it, but okay. now I'm thinking maybe I should. Was it actually good? Uh, yeah, but again, I, it just it's just hard to feel like you're getting anybody's unbiased opinion on this guy and this event i feel like everybody is in the bag one way or the other and no one was really approaching it rationally everyone was either by golly he is a victim of the british empire and was unjustly court-martialed and executed and other people are just like he is a war criminal who i don't care what he was or wasn't told to do he was a monster and i don't know where the truth is other than to say it's gotta be like we always say that mix of both and i think i mean we're gonna get to all the details here jumping to my own conclusion here at the end i do think it's both i think he did horrible things and didn't feel that bad about him and deserved to be punished but at the same time so did most of the british empire during this time all around the world and they did kind of use him as a scapegoat basically they picked one of the monsters or two of the monsters to be executed to hide the fact that they were nothing but a house of monsters. And they kind of say that in the movie at the end. He's like, yeah, well, like, the reason that we're going through this at all is just because... Uh, oh, to broker a peace, broker a peace deal. It's this is the olive right, branch. because the, yeah. the British, the British want to get out of this war, and so we're kind of like the peace sacrifice where they can show that they're... Oh, we're changed. We're, you know. Yes, yes. Or we're willing to hold ourselves accountable. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, is, is it weird to say spoiler when, like, the story is, like, the whole premise is that, I mean, again, I'm going to say, if you haven't, if you're not familiar with the story, spoiler alert, dot, 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 they don't get away. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also the movie's over 40 years old now. And the story itself right. is this has happened 120, 120 years ago. Twenty years old, <laughs> right? They were executed almost 120 years ago. So yeah, spoiler alert: they were executed. Yeah, you know, over 10 years before World War One. Well, two, two of the three, two of the three. Yes, yes. Okay, so yeah. Anyway, yeah, I just listened to so much stuff about people that were so, so either enamored with Breaker Morant, and I can kind of see that side of it where you can almost see him as a Wyatt Earp type, as far as in the cultural zeitgeist, he was just this kind of. And swashbuckling is not the right word because that makes me think of like the sea, but he was just kind of this rough and tumble Hemingway, Wyatt Earp, Teddy Roosevelt type going around right. what they call the bush in Australia, local legend. Yeah, like a, a guy who, you know, he feels just as comfortable like out in the wilderness or, you know, fighting these battles and riding horses and stuff and, you know, having gunfights. Feels just as comfortable doing that as he does like sitting at a quiet table by himself writing poetry. Yes. Regardless of 
what bad things he did or didn't do. Either way, he's an interesting person. He's very, very interesting. And that, that was actually a big thing I got from this research. If we had done this as part of our, you know, initial, you know, 100 plus movie run, I think he would have been in the tournament for most interesting oh, really? people in history. I, I think he's kind of right up there with uh, some of the other people we put we put in. So yeah, then the other side is, was he maybe just an entitled, arrogant, pathological liar who just said whatever he had to do to get what he wanted his whole life? Like, there's that side of it, too. Yeah. And so Breaker Morant, uh, basically a nickname he got because he was a really good horse breaker. Like, he would be the guy that would come in, like, you're struggling to get this horse under control. Oh, bring in the breaker, bring in the breaker. Like, he was just the guy yeah. and there's like this legend that could just, you know, break any horse and got that nickname that he kind of, you know, took pride in. His name was uh, Harry and we're actually born, uh, I think, Edward Harry Morant or anyway. He's actually English, and that's kind of the big thing too. Right. Is uh, he's kind of this Australian folk hero, but he he's he's English. Uh, he moved to Australia in 1883. Is the the actual reason why known? Because in the movie they say he says that he has like a falling out with his family. He doesn't say over what, but he says he has some disagreement with his family in England, and that he was. That's why he moved to Australia. Um, I, I, I think. I think honestly, I think the whole theme of this episode is going to be, yeah, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Okay. And yeah. So his dad died before he was born, or I should say, his official recorded father died before he was born because his name was actually Murrant, M U R R A N T, and then it, okay. at a later point, while he was in Australia, he changed his name to Morant, claiming to be the son of a British admiral, and even this. Again, I kind of became convinced that he was lying about it, and he may have been lying about it, but then, like, maybe he wasn't. He might have been the bastard son of this British Admiral guy, but the, the, the Admiral never claimed him, but then some of the answers were sometimes odd. Like, you have all kinds of things like, well, he did go to a really expensive British boarding school that his mother couldn't afford, and we don't know how that was paid for. And just, like, all these question marks. Oh, right. Like, there's, yeah. there's circumstantial evidence that makes it, me think it's possible this guy was his son, but after he was executed... This British admiral basically openly said, despite any rumors, I have no connection to this guy, blah, blah, blah. And that's either like right after his death, the guy's like saying, no, he's not my son. Which, if he was secretly your son and you knew that, it's a really shitty time to come out and be like, nope, I disavow him. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I, I, I really don't know. I kind of became convinced that it was a lie. And I probably still leaned that it was probably a lie because he was just kind of like arrogant and from a lower class and he wanted to be upper class. So I'm just going to say that I'm the bastard son of this guy. But, uh, that documentary even interviews one of like the sons or grandsons of that admiral who find, has like an old letter that does refer to an illegitimate son, though. And it's just like, hmm. uh, so it's like it's possible, but not by name, exactly, but not by name. Uh. Yeah. So anyway, um, and then so same thing. Yeah, he's in Australia. He he actually gets married early on to this woman. Oh, I didn't write down her name, but basically she's famous enough in her own right that even if she never married Breaker Morant she would still have her own Wikipedia page because she went on to become okay. like a famous uh, anthropologist uh, working mm. with the uh, Aborigine tribes in Australia. And for like a few months, she was married to Bricker Morant when they were both like, you know, in their early 20s. And huh. they basically just got quickly separated. I don't think they even actually ever officially divorced. They just kind of, but again, I think they separated because all his lies and he was off, you know, stealing stuff and kiting checks. And he, he, and he was, he was kind of a kind of a mess and kind of just I, I think he was a bit of a, a bit of a liar, if not always. 
So even, even like when he gets to South Africa, he's, you know, claiming about, again, not sure about who his dad is. Sometimes maybe he was claiming he was working as a war correspondent when he wasn't yet. And he was stiff hotels on bills he owed them. And he just kind of basically a guy who just did whatever he wanted. Very, very entitled, which is what I kind of, what leads me to think that, yeah, order or no order. This is the kind of guy that's just going to do do whatever he wanted. And even, again, kind of cutting ahead. So as much as people say like, oh, he was just following orders, just following orders. Yeah, maybe he was just following orders, even though there's no record of orders at the highest up level, even if there's hints that orders maybe at the intermediate level or just above Morant. In his final letter, the night before he's executed, or his final poem, it just comes off as so, I'd say white supremacist, but the boards are white too. But just... He, you can just tell this is a person who feels aloof and above the boars. And that like, oh, well, you know, if you don't want to get executed, whatever you do, don't make friends with the boars or you're, make sure the boars are, are just as good as us. Like, it's just so condescending and like, yeah. so like, I don't know, it just, he's about to be executed for murdering them. And his, his tone is basically like, yeah, I did. They're scum. Like, is the vibe I'm getting from it. Yeah. So yeah, we, I'm kind of all over the place as always. But again, this is this is just kind of a mess. And the one thing it is worth noting, they bring this up in the film. So Kitchener is kind of the overall commander here who has a very, very small role in the movie or they just kind of like mention him briefly or show him briefly. And that's kind of a big thing is they want him to come into the trial and say he gave the order. Basically, he's the Colonel Jessup type there from A Few Good Men. They're trying to get to, yeah. to come in and say that he ordered the code red. Did you order the code red? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he basically just he he's too busy. They're not going to bring him in. And right. Uh, and then he sends a subordinate who says, "Of course, there was no such order." Right. And what annoyed me too in the documentary, there's this one guy in particular who was just totally. He was on this mission to get Breaker Moran exonerated in in the Australian and British courts, and just like to basically get a retroactive pardon. And again, he just. To me, he had an agenda. He wasn't being an impartial researcher. He had an agenda. He was going to yeah. use all his confirmation bias. Around anything he saw that was going to exonerate Breaker Morant was the truth, and anything that was against Breaker Morant was a lie. He even says, when the, I think the guy's name was Hamilton, who comes in on behalf of Kitchener and says there were no such order, this guy, like again, he's you know alive today, kind of trying to exonerate Morant, says, there's no doubt in my mind that Hamilton perjured himself when he said that. And I'm like... But he's like, he's like, I know with 100% certainty he perjured himself. I'm like, no, you don't. Right. There's no possible way to be 100% exactly, certain because exactly. there's no records of anything exactly. at the time. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, hey, no, you can say this is the way I lean. But he was like 100% confident. I was just like, well, then you're, you're I won't say an idiot because he wasn't an idiot. But you're like, you're being completely biased. You're being intellectually dishonest. There you go. That's the way to say it. Yeah. Exactly. And the, but then the other time I saw, I saw an interview, uh, this is another YouTube clip that had an interview with a guy on just like some Australian, you know, TV show. And he was kind of the other way where it was just like, just couldn't believe he's this Australian. Cause he's the buzz I got or the vibe I got was that in Australia today, they all like Bricker Morant just in general, the John Q public, oh, really? who, John Q public who doesn't know much about this situation. The sentiment is that. Breaker Morant was this local folk hero who we all loved, who was wrongly executed by the British. That's kind of just the assumption for the general Australian person who doesn't really know much about it. And if that's the only thing that you've ever heard, and even if you've seen the movie still, like that's that's not an unreasonable position. Oh, no, right, right. Yeah, and it sounds like they do. Everybody watches in Australia this movie growing up. Like this would be the movie they show you in middle school. And just it's a very, very like well, well watched movie in Australia. Kind of one of those, you know, almost like a classic. And it's even like 
jump into awards. So this was nominated for one Oscar for the screenplay, but like at the Australian Film Awards, this just swept. Like this just won everything. Oh, of course. Like it just dom- yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a it's a good. It's movie. a it's we, a we, really good movie. Yeah, yeah. We we be more specific about it in a minute. Okay, but. okay. <laughs> so let's see. This I thought was worth mentioning, and again, I'm kind of all, all out of order here, but this was a quote on the Wikipedia page, and this was actually just from a Boer commander, and it was actually in reference to an earlier conflict, not even exactly the first Boer War, but some other intermediate conflict, I think maybe when they were trying to gain their independence in those uh, northern areas that they had migrated into. Anyway, it, it's a quote from him just about as far as how he as a Boer felt about the British presence in South Africa and, and kind of the conflicts they're kind of always having with, with the British. Uh, and he said, I bear no hatred against England. I hate no one. Everyone is welcome in our country, whether he be a Frenchman or a German or American or Englishman. I am always ready to hand him the hand of friendship. But let all the world come and try to trample me down and put his foot on my neck and, to, and try to crush my country then with 20 men and me, I will fight. Yes, fight the world entire. Fight till I am free or dead. So just kind of the sentiment of the Boers were, hey, everybody can come and hang out with us. That, we're cool with everybody. Yeah. But don't try to take over. Like, we want right. our autonomy. And we're going to fight till we're dead for our autonomy. And, you know, it's fun. Well, not funny. Sad. I don't know. I don't know what the adjective I'll use. Is, but, like... If the British just understood that, they probably would have not had any problems. Right, right. <laughs> but the British Empire was all about control and power, and right. And again, well, we've talked about the you know the white supremacist streak that kind of runs through British imperialism. Well, even when they're looking at a lo- uh, other whites that they see as less than, it's it's almost not even about white supremacy. Well, it's about British supremacy. Right. And I was going to say that the definition of whiteness has has changed. Yeah, that's fair. Right. Like, like a someone that white supremacy at that time would not have included the Boers. It would also have not have included like the Irish Eastern Europeans right. or the Irish. Right. Or, you know, Italian, like right. The category of air quotes, white has broadened, has shifted had broadened. Yeah. It has broadened in, yeah. in yeah. history. Yeah. And broadened. So yeah, I, I don't think that it's unreasonable to say that the, the way that, that a lot of the, you know, especially the British military felt about the Boers at this time was similar to what we would today call white supremacy, even if at that time that term or, you know, sentiment didn't really exist the way that it does today. So the environment in South Africa at the time was, to say the least, toxic and harsh toward the Boers. And again, the film never says they didn't kill these people, other than I guess they try to get away with the the priest or the reverend they try to say that like oh it couldn't have been there because i was sleeping with these two women at the same time so i couldn't have killed the guy but even that historically is like i mean maybe he was killed by the you know by lieutenant hancock maybe he wasn't but like the only reason that that's like that that's in the movie is oh yeah like hancock killed this priest and then lied about it is because years later Oh, what's the, what's the other guy's name? Witten. Witten, who wrote the book. Years later, Witten wrote a letter to their uh, their lawyer and said, oh, he, you know, re- referred to, there was like some reference to Hancock killing the priest. So like, that's the only source that we have for that happening. Oh, uh, okay. Although, at the same time. Other than his like, dead body. <laughs> a, well, I was going to say, a priest gets shot and there's like British soldiers around. Yeah, yeah. And so like, like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, actually. That was something else that was interesting that I 
I, I don't know why they would have left this out of the movie, but that priest when he was shot had a a young like African boy, you know, oh. helper kid with him who was also huh. killed. Wow. But again, yeah, the the blacks aren't even worth talking about, I guess, in their opinion. But they didn't they didn't mention it in the movie. I, I don't know. I'm not, you know, assigning any kind of like oh, okay, yeah, yeah, agenda, any kind yeah. of like ill intention to the filmmakers. I'm just saying it's interesting that that was left out, right? And I want to be fair too. That's not the only thing. That it complicates it. Ca- it complicates things if you're going to include everything. It complicates yeah. things, and that's not the only thing that was left out as far as the charges because there were like, yes, there was even they worse were on charges. Trial yeah, for other stuff, additional charges that the movie doesn't even talk about. Some of which was way worse than what we see in the movie too, which is why I almost feel like that they're trying to. In the movie, I feel like it's on their side at least a little bit, even though it acknowledges yes. they did some horrible things. It leaves out right. some of the equally or more horrible things that, that they did. Right. But uh, before we get into those details, just, again, the the environment at the time. So regardless, even if Kitchener did not give the order specifically to take no prisoners, which is kind of what's, you know, the kind of sticking thing here is like, well, if you got these people who are surrendering, but we're not supposed to take prisoners, well, I guess we just have to execute them. Even if that was not a standing order by Kitchener, there were standing orders for burning farms, salting fields, stealing livestock, and putting the boars in concentration camps. Yes. Which apparently is one of the first times in like world history that we're, as far as putting the enemy, like women and children, into concentration yes. camps. Hey, yeah. the, the British invented that. Yep. And they don't really get into the conditions of those camps in the film here. They do kind of talk about it's actually the, the defense lawyer for Morant and company that says, well, hey, maybe we don't have proof of this order, but these are the things I personally did on orders yeah. as far as the burning farms and everything. Well, they they also talk about using them as like human shields. So they would mm. take all their prisoners and put them at the front of the train oh, yes. in uncovered carriages or whatever because they would get blown up. Right. And so they said, okay, so we'll we'll just use your own guys as human shields. Yeah, yeah. So that you don't blow us up. I, I, and I did not find a record of, or I, I didn't look into that specifically to see if that was the kind of, I mean, that feels accurate, but right. I didn't find specifically if that was a, a true thing or not. But yeah, yeah I, I don't know if that's historically accurate. I'm just saying, like, it, just in in the context of the movie, yeah. it goes to show that, like, they were doing, even if there wasn't an explicit order, like, shoot all the prisoners of war, they were definitely doing war crimey stuff on a regular basis anyway. Right. Everybody, like, the whole the whole British army. Right, right. And, and, and hey, and, the, and there was definitely instances of the Boers being uh, vicious toward the, the British. 100%. They, right, but at the same time, they were the minority underdog, too. So it's almost like right. saying, oh, I can't believe the Viet Cong scalped that American soldier. It's like, um, why was the American soldier there? Oh, so the concentration camps, they don't really go into detail in the film at all, and I didn't look too deep into this, but, like, there are pictures out there. It looks very much just like the Nazi concentration camps with women and children starving to death and just horrible, horrible conditions uh, in these camps that the movie doesn't address at all. And the film doesn't go this route at all, but the Wikipedia page kind of mentions this as an early instance of the, quote, Nuremberg defense, where... To what extent does we were just following orders, hold water in a court, court of law? And, you know, that's what the Nazis tried to say. Like, we were just following orders when we right. gassed children in gas chambers. And it's like, well, at some point, at what point is that not, is that no longer a valid defense? And, right. it, well, the, I don't think the movie goes to the Nazi extreme, but I guess I would argue it's like, yeah, you should. Because it was war crime city in South Africa here. For uh, for the British again, orders or no orders directly, the culture was war crimey, and even if there wasn't right. direct orders, 
everyone was just cool with atrocity after atrocity after atrocity. And that, yes, and so that's where maybe the scapegoating is accurate in that they were all, not all, but there was tons of these war crimes happening. Many people who were worse than Morant and company were not held accountable. And that basically, yes, Morant and uh, Hancock were probably executed to prove a point and probably picked because they were Australian and not British. That's correct. That's significant as well. Yes. But yeah. that doesn't mean they weren't guilty and deserving of their execution, if that makes sense. Right. I, other yes. than I'm against the death penalty in general, but yeah. Right. Ugh. Yeah. So yeah, so like, even little things too, like I saw differing accounts on, so the whole thing is triggered in the film when Moran's commanding officer Hunt attacks this house that they think is going to be just kind of easy to take and they end up getting slaughtered. Right. They, it's like a counter ambush situation. So yes. like, they think, oh, these guys are weak. And Sick. you know, yeah. and they don't even have guards posted, so we're going to ambush this house, right? And then as soon as they get close, it turns out there's actually a bunch of dudes there, right? And they, they counter ambush, yeah, and they mow, mow them yeah. down, and then that's what triggers Morant to just go, uh, go off, especially when he sees the mutilated body of Hunt, who he claims is like his best friend, and they were engaged to sisters when they v- went to visit England and stuff. But dot dot dot, there's even differing accounts on this. I found so. Again, I don't even know what to believe. There's some accounts that say, yes, him and Hunt were like BFFs. And there's other accounts that say they barely knew each other and that he was lying. And him and Hunt were never even in England at the same time. And they never were engaged as sisters. And, and Morant just made that up because he's a liar. Oh, really? But I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've seen both. And I don't know which to believe. Like, right. And it's, it's just, I couldn't find a lot of impartial research because I feel like every article had an agenda. Which is just so weird yeah. for something that happened 120 years ago that modern writers still are bringing this agenda to it. And I'm trying to be as impartial as possible, and I just don't know how to be. That concept, too, that, you know, in the film we see Morant, when he sees Hunt's body, his mutilated body, that's what kind of makes him, you know, he sees red and kind of goes off, and that's when he starts just, you know, like, berserker mode. Right. But in real life, it it sounded like that that, that was not possible because Hunt was had already been buried by the time that Morant showed up, and that he only like someone told heard him about it. Yeah, yeah. That his body had been mutilated, but he didn't actually see it. So there's no way that like in the movie where he's like, "Well, I saw the body, and there was only a gunshot wound in the shoulder and the leg, and so that's how I I knew that there was like definitive proof that he had mm. been mutilated alive or whatever." And that's like, there's no way, I guess, that that could have been. I'm not saying there's no way that he was mutilated. I'm saying there's no way that Morant saw it. Uh, Morant would have seen it. Yeah, and, and that's that's what I saw again. I see both. And so, the guy that they end up killing later, the the one that's wearing the khaki jacket. Yeah. In real life, that guy like denied all the way up until his death that they mutilated Hunt. Right, and, there, and there's basically some stories that the actual the the native black population had like some just kind of rituals that they would perform that weren't even necessarily intended to be. Uh, insulting to the corpse it was just kind of like a matter of court they actually had uh mutilated some boar bodies on the scene as well and it was maybe just part of a tribal ritual or like a custom and and again basically it's like cutting off the flesh of great warriors as a symbol of power kind of thing like to take their power but not necessarily like an insulting way almost like like these guys were awesome so we want to take their awesomeness as like a sacred thing um, and in gotcha. this, and what, what Europeans would perceive as mutilation was actually maybe done to hunt antivores. Oh, so kind of similar to the uh, to the John Smith thing from the Pocahontas episode we recorded last week, where there it's entirely possible that like 
the ritual that he thought was like a oh. ritual where they were gonna like you Executed. know brutally murder him was actually like a friendship thing like yeah a show, like, yeah hey we want to give you a hug or whatever and he's like oh like please don't strangle me or whatever no <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> po- possibly but again there's there's yeah so i did read it's actually this is the case where the wikipedia page is kind of where i read a lot of the stuff that kind of said like oh morant's lying about this he never saw the body they weren't that good of friends but then i would still see then this australian documentary is still talking about like when of course he saw the body was mutilated of course they were best friends i'm like well which is true right. then and i and yeah I, I so i don't usually wikipedia is more impartial and maybe they are and it's these other documentaries that are more skewed because they're trying to maybe placate an australia population that is on morant's side of all this so i don't know i don't know maybe he saw the body maybe he didn't maybe the guy was wearing the jacket maybe he wasn't yeah Anytime someone said, especially for stuff that happened 120 years ago, anytime that someone says, well, of course this was the case, it's like, <laughs> okay, like provide some evidence or right. Right. at the very least say, well, so-and-so said that this was the case and we think that he's credible because of this other, re-. like, if you just say, if, you're, if your reasoning is, well, of course it was. Right. Like, that's, that doesn't hold up. And the documentary even has like, oh, and here's the descendants of... I don't know if Moran has descent, living descendants, but Hancock's descendants and Witten's descendants. And like, okay. okay. But then they're also defending, yeah, and here's the descendants of the South Africans who were slaughtered by them. And like, they're interviewing both groups. And it's just like, oh, oh this, wow. this is tense. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you can guess which way they both believe. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so it's, the whole thing is just an absolute mess. But yeah, some of, some of the crimes that were not mentioned in the show, actually just all the crimes. So here's the reason, I guess, ultimately where I think, again, I think it's both. I'm on the side of Morant was a monster and entitled and thought he could get away with anything. But also at the same time, while saying that, I'm acknowledging that he was also a scapegoat for a whole British system where tons of people were like that. And there were people worse than Morant who never even got tried. Is that is that fair? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's you both. Can, you can have it both ways. You can yeah. say Morant was a monster, but also like so was everybody else. Right, right. If you're going to choose a scapegoat, yeah. choose someone who's actually guilty. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a letter. So it, it, Fort Edward is kind of where they were stationed out of. And there's a letter. And I I think with this, we even have, well, I guess I don't know 100% if they have this exact letter today, but I don't know where their source was otherwise. So there was a letter yeah. from soldiers at Fort Edward signed by 15 men. And they bullet pointed six things that they considered atrocities committed by Morant, Hancock, Witten, and others. Right. And two or three of them we discussed in the film. So there's the killing of, let's see. So there's the revenge killing of the one guy who's wearing the jacket. Right. There's the execution of the people who surrender, one of whom tries to like at the last second charge a Witten, and that's how when Witten uh, attacks him. Yeah. And then there's the, uh, oh, sorry. That's the only two of the six that are mentioned in the movie. The, the killing of the Reverend is actually not one of the six that these 15 guys wrote about. Right. Yeah. So the others are killing six men and a boy and stealing their money and livestock. Right. And then killing someone else who was going to turn them in for that. Like, oh, someone's like, oh, that sucks. You guys can't do that. Well, then they kill him. Right. Well, is that the one where it was, uh, I think it was Hancock. Is, is it one of the people, is, is that the guy that's actually a British soldier? One of the people that they're accused of killing in the actual letter was another British soldier. It wasn't even all just like boars either. That might've been the guy who was going to tell on them. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, that was kind of a stitches get stitches kind of thing, or snitches get stitches. 
There was a wagon train, including women and children, and they killed a five-year-old and 13-year-old boy. Again, they leave that out of the film. And then there was a, a father and two sons that became, they needed medical treatment for one of the sons. And so basically they were surrendering so that the Morant's group could take them to the hospital. Yeah, they just execute them instead. So there's way worse stuff that they leave out of the movie that make things way less ambiguous. And even the film's director does say, hey, we never pretended that they were innocent. I mean, we, we, straight, we stayed right from the beginning that they did these things. Yeah, but you leave out other things they did that were also just as bad or worse. So I think the film leans a little bit on their side, even though it doesn't make them angels by any means. So the the shooting of the, the guy that got killed that was the actual, I don't think he was British. It says a BBC trooper. So he's an Afrikaner, but he was killed by Lieutenant Hancock because of, oh, because he was going to tell the family members of the people that they had just killed that their family members were dead. Oh, okay. And like, it was like the women and children that were getting ready to get shipped to one of the concentration camps. And so he said, Hey, you know, I just want to let you know that like that guy, Lieutenant Hancock, like murdered your family or whatever. And so then Hancock murdered him according to the letter. Okay. Okay. So like even all of this stuff can't even be defended by, if it, if true, can't be defended by like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's the fog of war. Like, we didn't have a choice. Like, you know, we weren't allowed to take prisoners. We didn't have resources to take care of prisoners, whatever. Like, no, that's just shooting someone to try and get away with the crime. Like, that's just, a, that's completely indefensible. Yes. And kind of tying into what I said earlier, Morant reportedly said, you know, he's being scapegoated. I'm being scapegoated just because I shot a few damn boars. Like... He definitely saw himself as as above them. And here's this is kind of a longer quote. I'll at least you can read part of it. Or maybe I'll read the whole thing and I can always edit out the part later that I don't want to keep in. So this is from one of the British people who helped bring about the case against Morant in the first place. Like they're almost even, they're basically, like they're talking and Morant's kind of, again, this is probably, probably the conversation. Morant says, oh, just because I shot a few damn boars. And the guy's like, Morant, I am very proud of having been the cause of bringing you to trial. You know in your heart that you and Hancock murdered poor old Heath, that's the, the reverend, uh, because you were afraid that he would report the shooting of the boars in cold blood. But you were such damn fools not just to realize we had all the evidence without calling on him. We know who is behind it all and has led you by the nose, but we haven't got him yet. So there's kind of maybe an implication of either Hunt or Kitchener or someone above there. Actually, it's, it's that Taylor guy was actually one of the worst ones, I think, that... uh. Uh, never got never got prosecuted or executed. Right. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, but we haven't got him yet. I don't recognize you and that poor fool Hancock as brother officers, like with me. You're not my brothers. Right. Um, you are guilty as hell, and I am glad to help send you there. Yeah. Anyway, so that was by the guy who kind of helped bring bring it to trial. So again, this was another British officer who just kind of said, "I don't acknowledge you guys as my fellow soldiers. You guys are monsters and deserve what's coming to you." And right. scapegoat or not, because he does he does even kind of reference. We know who is behind it all and has led you by the nose, but we haven't got him yet. So there's kind of like, maybe you are being scapegoated, but you know what? Get in line with the other monsters to be executed. Yeah. I thought that was maybe maybe a good summary. Very, very similar. And, you know, I like I feel the same way towards like the Nazis at the Nuremberg trials. Right. Right. I know that it wasn't necessarily your idea, but that doesn't mean you're not still guilty. Right. Like, right. Where it is tough, though, too, it's like, it's one thing to say, like, okay, what are the repercussions of not following orders? And uh, <laughs> I don't want to say, like, I can understand the Nazi side of it more than I can understand the Morant side of it. because I mean, There's a situation, like, those Nazi soldiers end up getting killed themselves for not following orders. And it's basically like, oh, well, I'm dead either way. And it becomes a survival mechanism. 
and I don't know enough about the details there. So, and that's not, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Right. But I'm saying Morant, for refusing to follow orders, would not have been executed for insubordination, I don't think. You know what I'm saying? So I think it's... No, he was an officer. He right, was, he would have been relieved of duty, basically, yeah. Maybe, at, oh, at right, worst, maybe, right. maybe, maybe he's just like, the, the wars at this point was almost over anyway. So maybe it's just like, ah, that break of Morant, like, right, what a... Right. What a wuss for not wanting to murder innocent people and put people in concentration camps. Ah, whatever. Like, right. I don't even necessarily think that it would have been like. It wouldn't have mattered. Yeah. 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 And one of their defense things in the trial, and we see in the movie, is that he actually had defied those orders previously to Hunt's death. And that it was Hunt's death that kind of triggered him to, you know what? By golly, I will stop taking prisoners and start executing these people. Yeah. But yes, ultimately, they, they were indicted. Uh, here's another quote written after the fact. So this is a, a confidential report to the war office after the fact. Uh, someone wrote in, again, a, a British colonel wrote in, and it says, uh, I agree generally with the views expressed by the court of inquiry in the opinions of the several cases. The idea that no prisoners were to be taken in the Splunkin <laughs> uh, area Appears to have been started by the late Captain Hunt and after his death continued by orders personally given by Captain Taylor. So basically, that is kind of the British acknowledging, yeah, there might have been standing orders that didn't necessarily come from the top, right. but that at the in-between guys above Morant probably did have these standing orders. But if your standing orders are war crimes, <laughs> there's unlawful orders that don't have to be followed. But yeah, and it's, uh, so uh, actually, so this is all still, this actually continues. So he also then says, this is all still in that, that same confidential report. The statement that Captain Hunt's body had been maltreated is in no way corroborated, and the reprisals undertaken by Lieutenant Morant on this idea were utterly unjustifiable. But again, this is someone who was, wasn't necessarily there, but this is the official British report, but it was confidential, so it wasn't like this was like, you know, a press release. Uh, Morant seems to have been the primary mover in carrying out these orders, and Lieutenant Hancock willingly lent himself out as the principal executioner of them. Lieutenant Morant acquiesced in the illegal execution of the wounded boar uh, Viser. Uh, that's just the guy's name. Yeah, that's the one that was wearing the jacket. That okay, was wearing khaki. okay, yep. Okay, and uh, and took a personal part in the massacre of the eight surrendered boars on twenty three August. There's one we actually they don't really mention in the movie either. So those eight people that surrender and the one charges uh, Witten and uh, then they execute them all. Yeah, four of those were just. School teachers, like, and not even like native yes. board, like they were just like they were literally they were Dutch, as in they were literally like from the Netherlands, had come down to South Africa right. to set up some schools, and were like, right. "Hey, don't shoot us! We're just school teachers." Right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, like, and not to make any like hyperbolic comparisons, but that's the kind of stuff that we demonize like terrorist groups for today. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Then I just kind of get to like a lot of little things were apparently accurate and they were like, they showed up, you know, in the Wikipedia page, they show up in the movie and then they show up in the documentary, little things like them when they had the priest that before they get executed and Morant's like, oh, I'm a pagan. And then, you know, Hancock doesn't know what that is. And then when it, uh, Morant explains it to him, he's like, oh, I'm a pagan too. Apparently that really happened. And then him telling the execution, execution squad, the firing squad to uh, shoot straight, you bastards. Yeah, apparently he really said that, which I mean... Even monster aside, it's a pretty badass way to go out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Witten did write a book called Scapegoats of the Empire. Again, critics yeah. would call it propaganda trash, that it's just his one-sided thing. It's just, he's just, obviously, that's the position he's going to take, and he's just as full of it as Morant. But even though you could argue, oh no, they were scapegoats, they were just also guilty. 
So, did you get a chance to look into some of the more details of any of these other characters, whether Hancock or Taylor or... I did. I looked into Hancock and Witten. Okay. But, like, it's... There's not a lot... Uh, the only... Re- again... We only know about them because of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. We only know about the... Like, people are only interested in them, or historians are only interested in them because of, like, their involvement in this story. So there's not a ton... Like, the only things that I found that weren't actually in the movie was that, I guess, Hancock, he was in another military unit in the New South Wales Mounted Rifles as an enlisted guy before he was in the Bushveld Carboneers as a as an officer. But, you know, he was, his early life, nothing is really known about him. And then he enlists in the military, and then he goes to South Africa, and then, he, you know, does war crimes and is executed. So, like, <laughs> his, there's not a ton about him. George Witten, there is a little bit more just because he lived He longer. lived, right, um, so, right. Of the three, Hancock and Morant were executed. Witten was sentenced to life in prison, but he only served three years of his sentence. Yeah, yeah. And so he had his sentence commuted, but he or had his sentence was like shortened. He was let out of prison, but he was never pardoned, despite multiple efforts by multiple people. And it it looks like even something like pretty recently. Well, yeah, like, last right. To this day, they're still years. trying to exonerate these guys. Yeah. Yeah. People are still trying to get these guys like, uh, you know, posthumous pardons. But yeah, but other than his involvement in the war, he did write the book Scapegoats of the Empire, which like you can probably guess the whole book is about, hey, we, you know, yeah, we did maybe some bad stuff, but we were under orders and the British Empire just wanted to make an example of us. And, you know, use this as a sacrifice for these, their political ends. And as kind of like a, like to say, oh, well, we, you know, we, we didn't have an official just kill everybody, don't take any prisoners policy. That was just, you know, if, if that happened, that was the actions of like this, you know, this nasty few guys at relatively low levels. And yeah, he basically lived out the rest of his days in... Australia. He was a dairy farmer. He got married. I oh, think they had had kids, which are why I was seeing descendants of these oh, guys. Yeah, <laughs> he did not have any kids, but he uh, he adopted an orphan. Oh, huh. Okay. So, and then he died of a heart attack in 1942. Okay. Yeah, and, and uh, the one thing I guess I'm puzzled by too is is uh, I get you can argue there was a miscarriage of justice from the letter of the law, how things were usually done in court martials and how maybe they weren't given the shake that other previous British officers might have been given in a court martial. But I don't understand the desire to exonerate them on a technicality when they were so clearly horrible. <laughs> it's almost just like, instead of saying like, oh, they need pardon, it's like, no, how will we retroactively condemn the people who were just as bad at them? Instead, of, basically, these people are saying, well, they weren't any worse, so why are they getting executed? Right. It's like, no, why weren't like why wasn't the Colonel Taylor or whatever yeah. getting executed? Yeah. It's like, uh, anyway. So the movie itself, I really, really liked this movie. It was really good. It's a well-made movie for sure. Yes, and it was. Uh, it almost seems like oh, a forty-year-old courtroom drama. No thanks. No, it's engaging as heck. The performances are awesome. Yeah. It, and it, it's a short runtime, so it flies by. Yeah. They did some cool stuff, some cool uh, practical effects stuff, like with the um, 
I don't know if you noticed, like, during the attack or whatever, like, the way that they were editing the shots where, like, people were blown up. There's one shot in particular where they, like, shoot this guy off the wall, and he falls, and there's, like, it's hard to miss, but it's, like, there's this quick cut where he, like, falls off, and there's an explosion right behind oh, him. Oh, yeah, it's like, yeah. oh, that was, that was pretty cool. They do a lot in the courtroom. They do a lot of split diopter shots. I think this is a good movie to use as an example of that, where basically it's it's like a cover that you put over a lens where it's basically half of another lens. And you've you've seen this before, like for listeners who, you know, say, I don't know what you're talking about. You've seen it before. It's where you have half the frame is like close up and in focus. And then the other half of the frame is far away and also in focus. But like the one half, the background looks kind of blurry. Does that make sense? I think so. <laughs> if you look up a picture, you'll be able to see it. And usually they'll, they'll like, in a lot of times movies will like hide the split with uh something in the frame that's like a vertical line in, yeah you know, yeah in in the background so it kind of masks the the actual split but i liked that because it allowed them to do longer takes during the questioning and still have everybody in frame hmm. so basically you have it, it'd be like the the well depending on which way they're facing in the courtroom but like for instance when the the prosecutor is questioning the witnesses you would have the left half of the frame would be the witness up close to the camera, like close up to their face in focus. But then they were able to then also, because of using the split diopter, keep the prosecutor in the background also in focus. Hmm. And then you can see the interaction between the two without just having to do shot reverse shot over and over again. And I thought that that was a little bit more interesting way to shoot a sequence like that. And it allows for, I think, better performances because you can get longer takes, which again, that's like big time something that it shows that, oh, this is based on a play because you have these long, you know, these long takes where you have everybody in frame all at once and not a lot of like going back and forth like you would see in a traditional like courtroom movie. And uh, without though, too, sometimes when you translate a play to a film, it feels constrained by the yes. by the, by the, 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 the staging and this does not feel like that it like you almost right. you forget that this would have been a play like even halfway through it was like oh i guess this was a play based on a play like it is it doesn't it never feels constrained to the set because of course they're doing right. flashbacks but also like you're saying the way they're shooting it doesn't at all feel like you're just filming a play where you're just kind of like right. watching the whole thing like you're basically you know the opposite of what you're saying would be to be have just the whole thing in frame, the whole courtroom in frame, and what is a static shot while they're talking. It basically right. readily does that. It's it's way more dynamic. Uh, so yeah. it just it feels like a regular movie. <laughs> well, I mean, it is a regular movie. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it doesn't feel based on a play. Uh, it feels more, even for being stuck mostly in a courtroom, it feels more lively than that. Um, the attack you mentioned there, too, that's one thing we didn't mention is... Oh, that was real. That actually happened. Exactly. So the Boers attack where they're being held prisoner and where the trial's taking place... And they straight up let the guys out of the cells and hand them rifles. Yeah. And that is actually another instance to their point for why they potentially could have been exonerated is there was apparently a standing rule that, hey, if you're on trial for being court martial or whatever, you're, you've committed some crime and you're called to action and then render service, you're basically let off. Yeah. Or you definitely would not be executed now. We can't execute right. you because you just helped save our lives and that they still ignored right. that. And there apparently is some truth to that. So I guess maybe at the end of the day, even though I'm not on their side, since I'm against the death penalty anyway, and you do have this case, 
you could definitely you definitely could have argued they should have just been imprisoned for you know life yeah that was wild i i when i was watching that i was like, like no there's no way this is true <laughs> i was thinking like okay this is just something they put in here so this is you know to like sell tickets so they can you know in the trailer they can show the guys like shooting the machine gun and it yeah. make the movie look more actiony and exciting yeah. <laughs> nope that's but real no that was real that actually that actually really happened and that was also like when they, you know, you see the, they, uh, they blow up the guard post or whatever, and they're like, you know, the, the boars are all running up, you know, shooting in the tents and everything. And I s- see the guys running over to the, uh, Highlanders, the guys that are wearing the kilts. Oh, yeah, yeah. Themselves carrying the extra rifle. I was like, they're not about to let these guys out of prison to like help them fight. And then, but then I was thinking, like, well, I guess in that situation, it's like, well, we need all the help we can get. Yeah. And it's also in their best interest to help us fight because the yep. wars aren't going to make the distinction between like, <laughs> prisoner and honestly, probably even worse because they're on trial for war crimes. Against <laughs> the wars. Yeah, that's true. They had as much uh, reason as anybody to fight off the wars in that instance. Right. I just, I was like, that is so, that is so insane that it's like, oh, you're on trial for war crimes, but like, here, have this gun, come help us fight this battle real fast. And then the other thing we, I guess we didn't really address either is you can definitely argue, especially in like a guerrilla warfare situation, at some point, where do you draw that line between enemy combatant killed in a fair fight and prisoner and it's now murder to, you know, execute them? At some point, that distinction has to be made. And I'm not saying you can't make that distinction, but I'm saying those lines are often blurred. And then, but then I think, I guess then the counterpoint is guys like Morant took intentional advantage of those blurred lines to commit their atrocities. So, but again, I, I, right. we always talk about real life is definitely complicated. And there there are, uh, I'm not super knowledgeable on the subject, but I know that there are like laws of armed conflict that do, there are rules between like what counts as like an enemy soldier, like an actual regular military member versus someone who would be like an enemy combatant right which is they're not part of any official you know nation's standing army but they're you know a combatant versus just a regular civilian and i think that yeah there might be you know some blurred lines between what's a soldier and what's a combatant but there's not any blurred line grayness between what's an enemy combatant and shooting a school teacher yes So then I guess the fallout of the war itself. So you kind of you actually see it in the movie that they were kind of using the execution of Morant and Hancock as an olive branch of sorts to kind of bring the war to the end. And that is what happened. They, they soon they soon after kind of came to uh, a ceasefire and there was negotiations. And basically what they transitioned to was uh, they were promising the Boers more self-governance so the idea was to go from british control to basically transitioning them into a commonwealth state or a dominion state so basically they were going to be they were going to basically okay the british will back off and you'll just become part of the commonwealth or a dominion state and we'll leave and that is actually what happened for a while and then it wasn't until uh i think the 1930s that they then became okay kind of like ireland now we're no longer that British were not Commonwealth. We're not British are completely gone. But there was a, few, a couple decades in there where they kind of were more like Australia or Canada before they then became completely independent South Africa with no more British ties. So this conflict yeah. is kind of what got that first stage, and it went from British control to Commonwealth status before they then ultimately became uh, completely independent. 
And those are the things we kind of see throughout, too, when we look at, like, say, it's easy to for, or easy to forget that like Australia is still that Commonwealth status, I and mean, we we talked about the crown where yeah. Princess Diana and Charles go down there, and there's still the debate, you know, in the 1980s that okay, should we actually just straight up be independent as Australia and no longer be Commonwealth, where these are still technically our monarchs, or like with Canada, it's right. like it's, Queen Elizabeth is still on Canadian money, and that just seems so bizarre. But yes, yeah, South Africa, like Ireland, was for a little bit in that status before we. Actually, cutting that off completely, which uh, Australia and Canada have not done at time of recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I dug the movie, and for whatever reason, I think on the cover, I thought the guy playing Morant. I just, I just, I could just assumed it was Michael Caine, and so like, oh really? I don't know why. Oh, because you saw Zulu. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so like, for the first like twenty minutes, I was like, "Where's Michael Caine?" <laughs> and then. And then I finally got to the point. I was like, "Oh, Michael Caine's not in this movie." I thought it looked like Christopher Plummer on the cover. Oh yeah, I can see that too. Looks like a young Christopher Plummer. Although I don't even know how young Christopher Plummer would have been when this movie came out. He was oh, he was born in oh, you you'd have been the right age. Yeah, you yeah. were twenty nine. Oh, I guess there's a good point too. So the the act, the actors were all probably a little older than the actual guys. Like Morant was not even forty yet when he was executed. Uh, and the actor, I think, was closer to 50. But, I mean, that's that's kind of normal movie yeah. stuff there. Hancock was 34. I think that's probably, probably about, right. about right. And then Witten was born in 1874, so that he would have been 32. That is about right, or probably. 27. Tw- 20, 27. 27. 74 to or, 1902? Or, oh, sorry, oh 20, 20, 28. 28. Yeah, yeah. 28. Okay. Yeah, it's so that it's a it's a 7.9 on IMDb. It's a 100% critics, 91 audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a really good movie. It's a really, really good movie. Like, th- this is one I could definitely, oh, definitely watch again. You said that it won an Oscar. I said it was, sorry, nominated for an Oscar. Oh, it, oh, it was nominated for an Oscar. It was nominated for uh, Best uh, best Adapted Screenplay because of, it was based on the play. What won that year? Just curious. Oh, yeah, it's a good question. Let's uh, pull that up. Do you have a guess? Oh, man. I uh, Too later. <laughs> I already found it. Ordinary People. Oh, okay. I have never seen it. <laughs> it's solid. I saw it one time because it was the Best Picture winner, but I haven't Yeah, I haven't seen it since. It was a good year, though. I mean, for the In that category of Best uh, Adapted Screenplay, Ordinary People won, Breaker Morant, Coal Miner's Daughter, Elephant Man. Uh, I've seen all four of those, and then uh, one called The Stuntman that I have not heard of. But yeah, anything else? Did we do it? Thank you to yeah, I was gonna say. Uh, Aaron's <laughs> unnamed coworker for recommending the movie. Because I, I, I don't know if I said this already, but I had never heard of this movie okay. before you brought it up. It, so, it, it was only yeah. vaguely familiar. Yeah, apparently this is like, it'd be like not Solid having heard movie. of, I don't even know what the equivalent would be, <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia, if uh, you're from Australia. Yeah, so yes, thanks for the recommendation. This was uh, This is a really, really good movie that I'm glad we had a chance to watch, so... We are all about. We actually haven't had a lot of recommendations come in the last few months. So, seriously, we if if it's got a high enough re, uh, high enough reviews on the Rotten Tomatoes, there <laughs> there are tons of movies like this. That I mean, there's thousands, thousands of movies. So we're gonna miss stuff like this. That this was really good, and I'm glad we had a chance to watch it. So keep giving those recommendations to us, and we'll get to them uh, as we can. Hopefully, here I think right now we at because uh, again we're recording this in november we'll probably release it sometime in january in the middle of our most interesting person in history tournament i think we're finishing up the uh, final eight when this comes out so stay tuned for all of that and we'll catch you later